I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. It's KRCL's show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you for your support that makes this show possible and all the shows possible on Listener's Community Radio of Utah. If you're new here, well, you can read up on us at krcl.org or on social media, where our handle is KRCL Radio. Please follow, please like, please share. On the show tonight, we continue our collaboration with Reframing the Conversation, a series curated by the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Division up at the University of Utah. Tonight, you're going to hear some of 2045, Towards a More Diverse Future. We've known the population in Utah is going to double by 2060, but the entire picture countrywide is going to evolve dramatically by 2045. Find out more later this hour. Also on the show, we begin a collaboration with James Jackson, founder of the Utah Black Chamber, which just published a book, Black Utah, Stories from a Thriving Community. Tonight, he talks with educator and founder of RISE Virtual Academy, Michelle Love Day. First, we'll get started with rallies and resources. A list of events for radioactive types that's found at krcl.org under the Community Affairs tab. Coming up Sunday, February 6th, let's talk about it. Black is a conversation on what is black in Utah. I wanted to find out more, so I jumped on Zoom earlier this afternoon with Malaysia Garfield of the Black Cultural Center, which will host this conversation. Malaysia, it's so good to see you. How are you today? You know, I'm doing all right. Despite everything going on in the world, I'm, I'm doing pretty good this, today. <laughs> That's good to hear. And you know what? That offer still stands for you to be a community co-host. We are so close to having the studios done. I'm really excited to get you in here as a host, my friend. Yes, I'm excited too. I cannot wait once everything is finalized to see what, what that looks like. But yeah. Now, your work at the Black Cultural Center at the University of Utah that you lead, um, I'm guessing is pretty busy for Black History Month. And there's something coming up specifically on Sunday this weekend, I wanted to get on folks' radar. And that's a conversation about what Black is in Utah from 2 to 5. Is that still happening in person? It is. It is happening um, here at the Black Cultural Center. And really, it's have folks kind of have a conversation around, like, what is Black in Utah? And some of the questions, my goal of that is to ask, like, hey, well, how do we define Blackness in Utah? Is there any divides amongst the community? Um, is there things that we need to kind of put on the table and just kind of talk about? And it's not necessarily a town hall. It's just a community discussion, just us kind of getting together around a little bit of food and just kind of talking about like, hey, what is Blackness here in Utah? And how do we as a community come together? Uh, what are some things that we just should really kind of just talk about overall? Um, things in the nature, but yeah. Challenging times for sure, given the conversation across the country, but on our own Capitol Hill about critical race theory mm -hmm. and what we talk about our history when it comes to race, not to mention the whole Joe Rogan Spotify controversy. <laughs> you got any yeah. comments along those lines when it comes to what is black in Utah, America, the world? I, it's, it's an intense conversation, but I'm guessing you're really trying to have a community gathering about this. Yeah, more so a community gathering um, in comments around like critical race theory and like stuff that is going on. I just had this conversation the other day where my I'm kind of frustrated in, a, in this in a sense that folks are hesitant to kind of talk about inclusive history, um, inclusive history, inclusive narratives um, that brings together all people rather than excluding uh, if we are looking about all of us kind of coming together as a country, as a, as a state or even a city, like we need to have that inclusiveness, um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, but also really that, that inclusion aspect of, you know, me, who I am. Um, but you also know my ancestors, you know, where I come from, you know, what is the makeup on how I got here. And if you don't want to listen to any of that, uh, it's troubling to me. It's in a way to me, it's, it's a slap in the face. It's anti-black. It's anti, it's racism to me, but yeah. History is messy. History should make us uncomfortable. We should be able to look at it and go, are we there yet? And look yes. back and go, okay, we did some really bleeping, bleepity bleeping <laughs> things. We've sorted some stuff out. Here's where we need to go next. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and I, 
I hope that um, as we move forward and we do things and we have community conversations that that is kind of the dialogue that we can have as in like, why do we do not want to have uh, inclusive narratives and inclusive history? Um, why wouldn't you want to know um, where things have come to be or why it is today? Um, I don't understand. But then again, history and K through 12 in, its, in itself, history class is not really, um, not that very inclusive, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Sunday, two to five at the Black Cultural Center. Where is that? So folks can find you. Yes. Uh, it is on 95 Fort Douglas um, Boulevard, building 603. We are, uh, if you are familiar with the university, we're right across the street as a landmark, the guest house. Okay. Um, historic Fort Douglas. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes and you do need to register for the event just so you guys can count and, and say how much capacity you have. And I'm guessing masks are required. Masks are, well. Or should I rephrase was, that? Or should I rephrase? Let me, let me rephrase. Encouraged. Masks are encouraged. Okay. So what are your COVID protocols up there on campus right now? Uh, as of currently, yes. Uh, masks are encouraged. Vaccine, uh, I know we have a, a Mac, uh, vaccine mandate as far as for students, faculty, and staff. But as far as a mask, um, we do not have a mask mandate. It is encouraged, though, for everyone to wear masks. And here. where can people track down the Black Cultural Center? Because you have quite a few things happening this month. Uh, yes, you can find us at diversity.utah.edu slash Black Cultural Center. And with that, you can find a number of things that are kind of going on. Um, yeah, what's this Wakanda forever? Ah, uh, there's a, there, yeah, there's a number of things going on. Uh, one of the events, yes, Wakanda forever, our school uh, social work is hosting an event. Um, and it's going to be, it's, it's going to be pretty cool, actually. Um, that event we're bringing in, uh, they are bringing in, I'm sorry, Dr. Peniel Joseph, um, and he's from a various other, um, he was on CNN and a couple other things, but they'll be kind of talking about centering black experiences on the screen and really film ad um, adaptions of comic books and black superheroes and, you know, just really black representation of media um, and more on the aspect of that nerdy side of it. But, yeah. All right, Malaysia, it's so good to see you. And I'll be putting in the show notes, folks, everything we talked about so you can check out the events and hopefully attend and widen your lens, shall we say. Thanks, Malaysia. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Malaysia Garfield of the Black Cultural Center at the University of Utah. And hopefully, once we get the new studios up and running, a community co-host here on Radioactive. February 18th is the deadline to submit your story for the Belong in Utah initiative. Belong in Utah is a statewide initiative to collect and share the stories of everyday Utahns, Utahns who choose to live, work, and play here in our great state. And if you're ready to share your story, well, you got to get on it. The deadline is February 18th to submit your tale. To find out more, let's pass the microphone to the person leading this initiative. Hello, everyone. My name is Zeman Sal, go by C for short, and I direct the Center for Economic Opportunity and Belonging at EDC Utah. So Belong in Utah, this statewide initiative is underway, a deadline coming up on the 18th. What, or should I say, who are you looking for? We're looking for anyone who is called Utah home, ordinary Utahns who are willing to share the story of finding belonging. We all know that this concept of belonging resonates with every individual, regardless of where you're from, where you were born, uh, how long you've been in Utah, finding the this idea of belonging resonates with everyone and all of us um, have gone through the challenge of finding belonging and we want to hear your stories of how you have overcome the challenges of finding belonging in this great state of Utah and what you can do individually to make sure that you don't inflict um, uh, harm in, in, in other individuals who are trying to find belonging. You know, we're in this very polarized time as a national conversation, but I think neighbor to neighbor is where we can make that impact, that change, that connection. So do you think that part of the value of Belong in Utah is amplifying those voices and those experiences? 
Absolutely, I think this is this campaign really is to um, as a way to tell your story to bring communities together. Um, I mentioned earlier that regardless of who you are, this idea of finding belonging resonates with everyone. Um, so we instead of trying to identify the. The differences amongst us. Let's come back to what brings us together as a community, and and that idea of finding belonging in a great state of Utah. All right, are you submitting your own stories, E? Because I'm guessing you have have lived this. I, I have. In fact, um, Belong in Utah is modeled towards a national campaign called Belonging Begins With Us. And the national campaign launched about two years ago, and they have asked uh, individuals across the nation to share their stories. And you can hear my story at the national campaign, belongingbeginswithus.org. I can hear it. I'm going to go get a clip right now. Here we go. This microphone represents finding my voice. Even after 31 years in America, I struggle with feelings of shame about my accent. Losing it felt like a key part of belonging to this country and fitting in. But that changed when I started working with mentors and other community leaders. They gave me the confidence to embrace my voice as a Chinese American. They helped me realize that my accent celebrates all the different people and cultures that make Salt Lake City beautiful. I may not say every word perfectly, but speaking can inspire other immigrants to use their voice for our community. Zimin Zhao, who is heading up the Belong in Utah campaign. And to find out more details and get your story submitted by February 18th, just check the show notes tonight for a link. Thanks, Z. Thank you, Laura. Great to be with you as always. My next guest founded the Utah Black Chamber to be the premier organization in serving the economic needs of the African-American community. Just this month, he's published Black Utah, stories from a thriving community, and I invited him to start a series of conversations with folks featured in the book so you could hear it too. Let's pass that microphone over to James Jackson and his guest this evening, Michelle Loveday, longtime educator in the Beehive State and founder of Rise Virtual Academy. Well, thanks, Laura. I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to kind of share in the spotlight to highlight Black Utah, which we're excited about. This came out on February 1st highlighting so many different experiences from the Black community, sharing their story and how they're thriving here. And who I have with me today is one of our contributors is Michelle Loveday, who I've known for how long, 10 years now, 20 years now? I don't even know. Uh, yeah, between 10 and 20. I've been here 17, so let's at least say 17. At least, at least 17. And we're, we're, we're rival football fans um, in that ASC North Division. Um, <laughs> And we both got eliminated here. So, you know, my dad refuses to cheer on the Cincinnati Bengals, but I was like, you know, they represent the ASC North. So let's let's give them their and I agree. I mean, I'm I'm definitely a Browns fan, but we'll cheer on uh we'll cheer on Ohio. I'll just plump <laughs> yeah. them all into that. Yeah, there you go. Cheer on Ohio. So um when I approached you back when, way back when, it seems like it was forever ago, but we literally put this book together in 10 month period. Yeah, uh, the concept came in April and I had you guys, at, I think in September, I think when I finally brought you guys in because you yeah, you do a lot working with the school district as an educator, you have Rice Academy. So I guess share with the audience all that you have been doing over since you arrived in Utah. Yeah, so I moved to Utah in 2005. I um, I am a transplant from Utah, but uh, moving here, it was definitely during a cultural shift when everything was happening. Happening, the evacuees from Hurricane Katrina were arriving, and you can definitely see the demographic changing very fast as even refugees were arriving in Utah. Um, so moved here. Um, Matt, my husband is from Wyoming, so he's from the West, and it was just easy for a teacher to move than uh, him in sales and marketing to move where I was. I've been teaching in multiple school districts throughout the state. And when I saw that there was low or none, you know, of representation of administrators, black administrators, I decided to go back and get my second master's uh, the next year and work on that. And so after that, I became an administrator for 11 years in Granite School District and was a principal, worked in the district office. And so in my 21 year career of teaching, I'm now um, on the middle part and um, 
working as a consultant for Jordan School District and Language and Culture Services. I'm also an um, educational consultant. I run and operate a company, Love Day Educational Consulting, where I do consulting work for other districts throughout the state too. Um, my home base is Jordan School District at this time, but working in equity and um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work for schools and maintaining the space. That was the premise of what Love Day Education educational consulting was, I wanted a space where parents of color, Black parents, felt like they had a voice at the table. And there's a lot of things that kind of uh, system, you know, systems that are in place that may not be familiar. And so I wanted to be able to help guide parents on advocating for their children and then work with schools on what that looks like when they're involving parents. And so that's where my consulting company came out of. And then in the wake of everything, just like many people had a reaction in 2020 with the civil unrest and we're home in a pandemic and things are going wrong um, in, in every area. And George Floyd happens. We have Ahmaud Arbery and just constant, we're just getting constantly beat. These are not the first that have happened, but it was the last straw. I started thinking, how can I really support our, our Black students here in Utah? We're spread out across the Wasatch Front and back. And there are not a lot of administrators or teachers that look like them to give them the support and encouragement. And we all know that it takes that one loving, caring adult to rally behind them. And so because of that unrest and everything that was happening, um, rather than getting in, you know, just in my feelings and upset, I decided to make sure that the students were going to come out okay. And so I created and founded Rise Virtual Academy, which is a virtual academy. Right now, Rise Academy is for Black students in Utah, K-12, to learn about their Black history. So while we're in Black History Month right now, uh, we definitely learn our Black 365. And we learn who we are and the shoulders we stand on, how we come before kings and queens, and not just the content that they learn in school about the civil rights era, that just the greatness of how we've established and created many things in America and how black history is American history. So we meet every Thursday night. They're the, my favorite evenings of the week. I love seeing all those students' faces on. We have black teachers uh, specifically for each grade group. And it's just been an amazing journey to have this um, organization and structure. My kids love it, sitting down at dinner, my own child, and talking to her, she's one of the only Black kids really in her school. Um, there's a handful now. And um, when we were talking about um, a question of like, what, what are, why are rules important? And should we have them? She remembered something from last year's curriculum about how there was a rule where one of the ice skaters uh, got penalized for doing like a back tuck and landing on one skate. And I said, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's right. You learned that from Rise. She wouldn't have learned that in school. So just learning about the representation of an ice skater, a black ice skater, and how rules can sometimes be um, too harsh or uh, not enough. And so it was just interesting as a parent to see the work that I'm doing for other kids affecting my own children in my own house. Wow, that's so powerful because we in, in all of this is going on, there's about this conversation around what type of history should be taught in schools and what's left out. And, you know, so you bring a whole new side because regardless if it's taught in schools or not, you're educating at least our community, the youth, and explained it. And this is our history, 365 every Thursday night. And being an educator, I'm going to dive into this a little bit deeper. Um, what, what do you think is the balance of what should be taught in school and and how people should just come to rise and learn about everything else. Right. It, it's one of those, it's a fine balance. I mean, education is eight hours a day, um, five days a week. And sometimes some of the content can't all be reached, right? There's so many perspectives of history that have to be touched on, not just Black history. And so for me as an educator, I think it's one of those things where you give students opportunities to explore the perspectives. So the teacher can't do it all and shouldn't do it all. Um, and it's definitely a community effort with parents coming in that represent other cultures. So if they're teaching about a specific time in history, um, 
invite parents and to share what their family was doing during that time. The 1920s, it's not just about the roaring 20s and what's going on in the white community, but what was happening during the Harlem Renaissance and what was happening in, in all those different eras and what was the native community doing? What was the Asian community doing? Where were they? And you can bring in voices from the community to share that. If that's not the case, if you don't have that representation at your school, it is imperative that you just assign the students that research. Our students are eager to search and learn and dig and use, you know, Google, um, have them explore that and give them a few minutes and partners to say, OK, find different perspectives of what was happening. Um, it shouldn't be all on the teacher, but it definitely is something that as they're teaching a time period, that they just spend a few minutes to remind students, this is just one perspective. How do we find out where the other perspectives are? Um, and it definitely takes a multicultural lens and all teachers can have that. Uh, and that's part of where I'd like to go with having you know, RISE centers around the state so that teachers can be trained on what that looks like as they're developing lesson plans. Yeah, so they can kind of choose what they want to implement into. And we see this in the house right now with the back and forth, like trying to, they want them to build out this curriculum. It's like, well, allowing the, the teacher to be flexible. Here's where it is right now. You know, this this is where the advantage is, right? Having them be able to be flexible, you know, during Black History Month, let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper. Or if yeah. you're looking at Hispanic Heritage Month, let's dive in a little bit deeper here to um, share these different perspectives. Yeah. And for me, especially too, being a transplant, I didn't just come here and say, okay, this is what needs to happen. I talked to Black families that have been here their whole entire time, right, that have lived and born, raised and had children and, and they, you know, came over with the first pioneers, you know, I attend a church that is probably, you know, it is older than statehood, as uh, Pastor Davis always talked about that, like there's, you know, pointed out there's a church, Calvary Baptist Church is older than statehood. So me learning from other people and being mentored helped me take all of the content around. And so when I'm watching the legislator try to uh, pin in teachers or parents don't realize you've always had access to the curriculum. It's, it's right there. It's always been available. There's been no um, hidden curriculum around. The transparency has been available and give the teachers the authority and professionalism that they are due to do this art. Um, it's, it's, you know, teaching is definitely creative and an art. Um, and just because everyone has been through school, doesn't make them an expert. I've been to the doctor, but I'm not an expert in that field. Um, you know, I play tennis, but I am not Venus and Serena. Yeah. So we've got to sometimes leave the things to the professionals and trust that we're going to have the same um, outcome. And I think as we're doing that, we can help and train and talk and have discussions, but giving the teachers the flexibility to teach um, will open up doors and not um, cause anyone to worry. Just because I'm talking about Black history doesn't mean that the students aren't aware that there's other people around them. Um, but if they can feel confident in who they are, then they can definitely engage in conversation with other people. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And you, and then feeding onto that, like what would, what would be the cost of of not diving in a little bit deeper, not allowing these teachers to be a little bit flexible and sharing all history, not just specific history? Right. And, and not sugarcoating it. It's like a family affair. Our history is, is not beautiful, right? But look at how far we've come and where we need to go. And let's own up to some of the mistakes in the past so we don't repeat it. I think ignoring the ugly part of it um, is kind of doing a disservice. Yes, we want to celebrate. Yes, we want to highlight the triumphs, but we also need to look at the tribulations because that is what grows a person. You can't just suddenly, I, I didn't just get to where I am in Love Day Educational Consulting and rise without some failures. And if I didn't share those failures of how long it took me to try to get a 501c3 attached, if I didn't share those failures, everyone would just walk around and think, oh, it's so easy. I'm just going to snap my fingers and say, I want to do this. No. And that's coming with education. Um, there comes struggle and work and patience to get the outcome that you know, needs to happen. Um, and I think in, with that, parents really need to use their voice. The community needs to step up. And, you know, we, we, we're so good on Facebook and social media and Instagram and TikTok, but when it comes down to it, we need parents of color 
to run for board. You know, there's a, a, a open position in every board um, across the state right now. Um, and if parents put in their name in March and say that they're going to run and declare their candidacy for November, you know, we've got to get parents out and you don't have to have that political background, but we need to have the voices at the table. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and then that's what we try to preach with you talk about chambers, like trying to change leadership, add more diversity to leadership in all aspects from the top down um, within the school system, especially because, you know, just what you were saying, that old African proverb, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. You can't just rely on the teacher to do it all for you, the teacher student. <clears throat> mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, the more engaged a parent is, you'll see the, the fruits of that coming Data out of that. Shows. Data shows. Yeah. yeah. And you do what you can with what you have. So if you can't personally run for office, who can you encourage and pass out flyers for to get them to run for office? Um, so March is that deadline for many areas to declare the candidacy. You don't have to start working right away, but we have to start rethinking um, in order for change to really happen or we're going to just keep having this cycle. Yeah, absolutely. So um, are you saying that we could we can see a, a candidate Michelle Love Day in the future? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I already ran for office for Bluffdale City Council in 2019, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I, I definitely am practicing what I preach. I did, you know, step out a little bit. I think uh, this time around, um, I'm going to just use my my privilege and education to encourage and support and use my voice to make changes at the district level. Um, so no, not right now, but I will be supporting a few candidates that are going to be declaring their candidacy here in March. I'll be on their kitchen cabinets as they're called. So I'll be behind the scenes and that's where a lot of the work is needed to support those people running, but not right now. I mean, if, you know, a president wants to call, I can be U.S. Secretary of Education and just change everything because <laughs> we need to change. <laughs> Love it. Um, well, going back to your work in the school districts, because um, you you you're originally in Granite and now you're coming over to to Jordan, and we get calls Black Chamber all the time, like where where do we put our kids in school if they're a person of color? And going from Granite to Jordan, you've yeah. worked with all the other school districts. Like, yeah. how do we? How do we navigate this process? Because, you know, where I was talking with someone yesterday, she's from Southside Chicago, I talked to someone the other day, West Philadelphia. So there's other places where it's a lot of the segregation happening. And one of the benefits of Utah is that we're just all over the place, right? Yeah, but there are challenges where when, when there's, when the diversity is so small and we are all over the place, like how do we discover our community? And so when they call in and say, where should I send my kids to school? Like, what would be your response? Oh, that that's a hard response because it depends on where they want to live. Yeah. Um, and, and Salt Lake County has unique demographics in, in, in different areas. So it's like, well, depending, I always say, do you want to look at activities that are close to enrich your children's lives? And, and what kind of restaurants do you want to live by? But at the end of the day, too, how do you want your allies to support your kids? Because there's so few everywhere. Um, I would reach out and have conversations with the district equity officers. There's somebody like me in every school district. I came from Jordan district and it was what, 10 years ago when they were splitting with canyons. So I, that's when I left when they were having the great divorce. Um, and so now canyons looks a little different than the old Jordan district looks like. So now I'm in the, the newer Jordan district of the last 11 years. And so it changes, you know, West Jordan has a beautiful uh, landscape or West Valley has a different landscape and a beautiful landscape. So I would just encourage them as they're looking at schools to look at the policy of the district and talk with the equity officer so that if something does go down, they have somebody that they can call to be an ally for them and they have that number. But when they're moving in, you know, I came from Cleveland. So I was, you know, ignorance is definitely bliss because I think no matter where you go in Utah, you're going to be like, yeah. oh, this is not. Um, but at the end of the day, no matter where you move your child to, if it's the neighborhood that, that sits well with you, the house is in the price range and you love the restaurants that are near you, I would then say, reach out and go to the events that are being advertised on Black Chambers website or NAACP or the Divine Nine Greek, um, you know, just you have to be intentional to be involved with your kids at that point to find your community after the nine to five um, is what I would encourage. 
Yeah, I like calling it diversity after five, right? It's yeah. like, how, how do, you know, companies could come up with their ERGs all day long, but if they have a new employee here and it's after five o'clock, how do they remain connected, not feel so so isolated, right? Um, and you mentioned earlier, you, you living out in Bluffdale and, you know, your, your daughter is usually the only one that's black in her class. Um, and she has the advantage of having you uh, as her mom and, you know, being in the educational space. Like how, <laughs> like, how do you encourage her? It's an advantage, but, <laughs> but <laughs> it is, you know, yes. And that's the thing. So what I've done as a parent, as we've lived out here and, and every parent has the right to do this, it's nothing that I overstepped with my role as a teacher. But when I had my children go into classrooms, I followed behind them every Thursday. And we said it before, I'm going to say it again. I showed my face. I helped staple the scholastic things together. I talked with the teacher. I volunteered to read to the students during Black History Month and do activities even before I started working in the district that they are in now. But I, I, I raised my hand to go on a few field trips and took some time off of work. And not everybody can do all those things, but trying to go in at least once a month to volunteer for a class party. Um, and now that things are, you know, you can do those things here. 2020 kind of stopped all of that. But just emailing the teacher, reaching out, what can I do at home? Letting them see your presence beyond just sending the kid to school is really important. Um, and I, I went so far as when my children started, I read the book, I Love My Hair in my kids' class because I want them to know that, yes, you're going to see them have different hairstyles. And this is how you can be respectful because it's not just for the black students, for the white students to go out in the world. We don't want Utah kids to be coming out looking stupid like they've never interacted with anyone of a different race. And for a lot of them, they haven't because their parents' circle is small. So what can we do in our small neighborhood to be present and model positive life for black families? Yeah. That's great. And that, and that's, a, I love that response. It, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, get involved, right? That helps, that helps your student, helps your child become a little more secure when they, when they feel like they're the only one there, but you know, let them know that their parents have their back yeah. and, they'll, and, roll, and yeah, they'll roll their eyes, but they love having <laughs> you in there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I even like, I volunteered for my junior high daughter, they had vision screening and they needed help with people just pointing to the letters on the wall. So I volunteered to do that. And when she walked into the library, she acted like she didn't know me at all. Like <laughs> didn't even wave. Some teenagers, I tell you. God, they are rough. But you know what she ended up doing? She got in my line to say mm. her little letters. Um, so it it does affect them, even if they try to play like you're not impacting in, in a way. So just do what you can when you can, but be a face in the school. Great, great. Well, last question as we wrap up, and I know people are curious. Um, we're going to talk about Davis, Davis School District here. All right, so Davis School District. Um, several months ago, there, a young child committed suicide, and in the wake of that, multiple things, there was a discovery about everything that's going on within Davis School District as far as racism in the classroom, and no one is doing everything about it, um, and now they hired Superintendent Jackie Thompson as per the Department of Justice to want to step in um, and start figuring things out, and it's making national headlines, and for me, being a native here, it's like, oh, I feel like we just, we're just getting beat up left and right about Utah. And so, uh, and we've interviewed a few people regarding being in Davis School District House went down and your consulting work with these districts, what do you see? And is the Davis School District like the black sheep of the district family or is it a lot of it going on? Like, how, what, what do you, what have, what have you found? Okay, I feel, cause I'm in the middle of, of an investigation so I don't want to speak too much, but I feel like it's the analogy of everybody is speeding on the highway and Davis School District is the yellow Lamborghini and they got pulled over and I got a pass because they couldn't catch everybody, right? Mm. Davis School District is just the Lamborghini right now because what's happening is necessary to have a light shown on them, but it is not the exception to what's happening across the state and across the nation. They just have a light 
and I hope that districts um, that I, you know, some of them, many of them that I've been working with, they've seen that light and they're like, how do we make sure that that's not us? How do we make sure that we don't have these civil rights complaints? And so it has turned ahead to make districts realize there's more we need to do than just trying to shove it under a mat. Davis School District has a lot of things going for them, good things going for them. They just need to bring them up more and have them established out and celebrate them more. Because, you know, I feel like lately, over the last few years with social media, people thrive on drama. But as educators, we really need to celebrate the number of students that bus drivers have driven to school and how many hours they have done. We really need to broadcast all the good things we're doing so that when a bad thing does happen, like a plane crash, it's so rare that it has to make the news. Um, and, and Davis School District, unfortunately, is just um, the middle child right now. But everybody's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody needs to shift and make a change. And I'm nervous because there's such a loud voice on the other side that is trying to get in the ear of um, the, the Capitol here where I don't want government to have to seep over into education, let us do our job to fix and correct it. But the DOJ's report was necessary to shine that light to make some change because we have been in a state that has been very colorblind for many years. And it's time to wake everybody up um, beyond what they want to see and what needs to be seen. And it's hard for change, but it's not that hard to see the humanity and what other, everybody's going through. Yeah, well, I love that. I love that the fact that, you you know, yes, they're being singled out at the moment, but there's issues happening in all schools, not just in Utah, but across the nation. And like I said, they're just the ones that unfortunately got pulled over because they just can't catch everybody. Right. Well, um, Mrs. Love, Love Day, I appreciate you coming in and sharing with us and congrats for, on everything you're doing. I appreciate all the contributions that you've done in the community with Rise Academy, your consulting and you know continuing that fight. Um, and we appreciate you sharing today. And if you guys wanna learn more about Michelle Love Day and her husband, Brandon and her family, where she goes a little more into her arrival here and Brandon's story and you know how they're navigating this fun life here in Utah and all that they're doing. You know, be sure you go to Amazon and purchase Black Utah Stories from a Thriving Community. We have the book in digital, black and white, as well as full color as well. So thank you so much, guys. And I'll turn the time over back to uh, Laura Jones. Thank you, James. James Jackson III, founder of the Utah Black Chamber. And tune in the next couple of Thursdays. He'll be continuing this interview series with folks featured in the new book, Black Utah Stories from a Thriving Community. Coming up next, reframing the conversation 2045 towards a more diverse future. And on the panel, James Jackson, right here on KRCL's Radioactive. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Utah Film Center and KRCL present Black, Bold, and Brilliant, a series of film and media events that highlight issues affecting the Black community. The next event on February 15th will discuss race, love, and artistic inspiration. More information at utahfilmcenter.org. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8. Gianni and the Dirty Boulevard it starts at 10.30. Rich Parks checks in at 1 with I Don't Sound Like Nobody. And Jolene's Illustrated Blues start at 3. John Florence kicks off your Friday with a brand new day at 6 a.m. And now we continue our partnership with Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah. They host and curate the Reframing the Conversation series. And just last month... They talked about 2045 toward a more diverse future. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the entire conversation. In the meantime, let's get you a clip. We start here with introductions by moderator Natalie Gochner, Associate Dean of the David Eccles School of Business and Director of the Kemsey Gardner Policy Institute at the University of Utah. So we have a terrific panel today. Uh, they're going to share insights and perspectives with you. And I love learning about them. And I think you will too. So I'm going to share uh, these meaningful bios with you so that you can get to know them a little bit better as they share their perspective. Uh, it looks like on my far right, we have uh, Jordan Brown. Uh, Jordan recently graduated from Weber State University with a degree in health promotion and education. He now is an MD candidate in the class of 2024 
where he acts as a co-president of the Psychiatry Student Interest Group and member of the White Coats for Black Lives organization. Jordan also serves as the treasurer of the first ever Student National Medical Association Utah chapter. And he also enjoys spending his spare time mentoring inner city and underprivileged youth in the Salt Lake Metro area, attending and supporting the Black Physicians of Utah organization and spending time with friends and family. Welcome to you, Jordan. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, on my immediate right, we have James Jackson III. Uh, James serves as the Supplier Diversity Program Manager at Zions Bank Corporation, where he's responsible for building relationships with capable, diverse suppliers who can provide goods and services across the enterprise. Uh, Mr. Jackson has worked in various areas of the financial industry for almost 20 years and found his passion serving and building his community. In conjunction with his role at the bank, Mr. Jackson serves on several boards of directors and is the founder of the Utah Black Chamber. Since its inception in 2009, the chamber has grown to not only serve Black-owned small businesses in Utah, but has become the premier organization connecting and engaging Utah's Black community and building bridges for inclusion. Thank you so much for joining us, James. Right next to James, we have Olivia Caramillo. Uh, Olivia is a strategic leadership uh, consultant and a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. She is currently director for public outreach at, Equ at Equality Utah. She was born and raised in Mexico. She's a retired United States Air Force veteran, so we can all give her applause for that, where she served <laughs> on tours to Iraq, Europe, and humanitarian missions in, into Africa. In 2016, she was one of the first individuals nationwide to legally change her name and gender marker while still serving on active duty. She has worked in furthering uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts for several companies and organizations, including the YMCA, Qualtrics, Dominion Energy, EDC Utah, and Adobe. She is a member of the YWCA's uh, Public Policy Committee and was a political candidate in 2020, currently lives in Salt Lake City with her son. Oliver. Thanks, Olivia, for joining us. And then right next to Olivia, we have uh, Claudia Loiza. Claudia is passionate about the intersections of opportunity, place, and justice. City planning became her conduit for this drive, and she believes that the state of a community depends on how accessible it is to people to work, play, navigate, and thrive in their environments, especially for historically marginalized groups. She is a second year master's student in the University of Utah's City and Metropolitan Planning Program. To better address disparities in city planning, community engagement, and access to critical services from a systemic approach. In her role as communications and community engagement coordinator with the Utah Division of Multicultural Affairs, she advances opportunities for underrepresented groups at the state level and encourages trust building and collaboration with communities to address localized concerns through policy impact, youth empowerment, equity-centered communications, and EBIA capacity building for organizations. Wow, welcome, Claudia. So as you can see, we have an incredible panel that can speak to us about these issues from a health perspective, a business perspective, an EDI perspective, and a planning perspective. And we're gonna, we're gonna make full use of your expertise. But I wanna just break the ice by just asking each of you in this question, to think about what this is titled, 2045 Towards a More Diverse Future. And it was mentioned that 2045 is the year when the United States becomes a minority majority country. And so I want to just ask, and I'll start Jordan with you over on the far, my far right, to just describe to me what the ideal 2045 um, community looks like in your eyes. Um. That's a great question. Um, I think what I like about that statement the most is um, towards. Because okay. I don't think at 2045 we'll have been arrived. I think it's always a progression. I think we're working towards something different. I think that's what um, this country is about. I don't think we're ever supposed to get to a destination. I think it's an idea. 
And for me, I think that's a place where, um, well, you don't have to hide who you are, but rather celebrate that. And I think it's a place where um, we can accept each other um, for differences, but also um, commonalities that we all have in common. Um, that's what I hope for. Yeah, love that. Olivia, uh, does this toward resonate with you? The way he's described, we're always sort of becoming, we're always moving towards something better. And, and what would you add to that kind of vision for 2045? Well, moving towards something better, it's, it's really something that's been accepted since this country was, was founded in the founding documents and everything. It's, it talked about how we're not supposed to be at that, we're not there yet, we're supposed to get there. And at some point we, perhaps maybe lost our way in, in other things, but now that is the opportunity that we can take to go forward. And, and now that we know better, we, we must do better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Claudia, when, when we say 2045, that's a long ways out. You're a planner. Uh, what do you think of when you think of the our community, our nation, our state in 2045? Yeah, th thank you for that question. And for, for um, our panelists' remarks so far, I think as a planner, our vision is always towards the future, right? And we're always trying to anticipate population growth, any kind of adjustments in society to make sure that everyone is taken care of and that they can thrive in place. And I think for me, um, 2045 looking into the future is also um, about, you know, challenging that perception that we have to be always surviving on the grind and just that hustle culture that I think that embodies a lot of our community work and spaces. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that by that point, we can be more gentle with, our, with ourselves um, and really embody that becoming idea that um, it's going to be a journey, but at the same time, it's important to pause and reflect on what exactly we've achieved so far and to celebrate in those moments. Um, but I think, you know, as, as a planner, again, that thriving in place idea is what resonates with me the most, that anyone, anywhere, wherever they are, can access what they need, what they want, um, and do so in a way that really meets their individual needs. Um, and you know, empowers them to not have to be in that surviving mentality all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, James, you get to bring us home on this question. I've heard a lot of words: um, thrive, uh, celebrate, um, you know, toward becoming. Uh, you can do it from a business perspective or just a personal perspective. But twenty forty five, what what is what should our nation look like, feel like? I can do it from combined personally and business. Um, a lot of people don't know that I'm I'm half Hispanic, and you know I have, a, I have a little sister who has a son whose dad is half Polynesian, half white, and also has a daughter who's half Italian, half white. So as we grow towards a more diverse future, you know ethnicity would be almost gone. Ethnicity and race it would just be identified as. Um, who you want to be identified as. And with that being said, from a business perspective, you know, our goal within the Utah Black Chamber is to work ourselves out of business to a point mm -hmm. to where there's not a need for so much advocacy and working with the government and corporations on a more diverse workforce or uh, eliminating the barriers in place for minority small businesses to grow, but we get more and more diverse. And the Black Chamber has seen it over the last three years with a 400% growth that companies are now recognizing that diversity does add dividends, it's important. And for those that are not focused on it are gonna fall behind. And not only have we seen this in the last two years, but within Utah, we've seen this the last five years, how we've become more and more progressive towards a more diverse workforce, uh, more diverse businesses, getting opportunities. Um, so yeah, I see these minority ethnic chambers becoming less and less um, important, which is not a bad thing. For me, I think it's a great thing to where we can just be absolved into the Salt Lake Chamber and just be a voice that way. Yeah. Okay. Very, I really love the setup that you all have provided. So on Monday, I attended the Salt Lake chapter of the NAACP's uh, Martin Luther King luncheon. It was very powerful. I don't know if some of you were there, but uh, you know, they, they, at different times, different speakers uh, quoted Dr. King. And I just found myself taking a couple of notes. And these are some of the more common quotes from Dr. King, but we just had a question about being, you know, many years, 23 years or so into the future. But one of Dr. King's quotes is, is about the, the fierce urgency of now. The fierce urgency of now. 
Uh, James, I'm going to stay with you and just ask you, how, how do you react to that? Given we want to become, we, we're, we're aiming, you know, in, in a directionally correct place, but how do we address the first, the, sorry, the fierce urgency of now? Success is found in your daily routine, right? Mm -hmm. So when we focus on 20-something years ahead, you now it seems so far away, and in the world of procrastinators and immediate, right, we're, you know, we're going to set that goal for 23 years later and we'll work on it about 22 years later, right? And so in order to really progress towards a more diverse future in the year 2045, what are we doing right now to, in order to get to that goal? Because it's, you know, we got to take it as if we're, you know, eating an elephant one bite at a time. What are some things that we can do now to make changes policy-wise, business-wise, um, in the workforce, within the workplace, um, you know, within the community? These little steps over time, you know, Martin Luther King talks about that staircase. Let's take these steps. And so every year we have 20, we go by years, we have 20 something steps to go by. By you know, and take that by every month, every every day, every minute, every hour. Right? Just take those little steps and don't try to take off so many chunks. And then if all of us work together by identifying the strengths and opportunities of what we can collaborate on and partner on, uh, let's do that now and not wait. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Olivia, you do training of companies. I read some of them. There's others that you do. But how does the fierce urgency of now affect the way you approach this when you're helping Utah companies um, become that you know become better? Well, this fits perfectly into all of the work that myself and other DEI specialists are doing. Uh, that urgency of now is what we're doing now is educate educating and really dispelling any misconceptions out there about anything. Because there's so many people that, for example, for the community that I, I tend to work most for, which is the LGBTQ community, there's so many misconceptions. There's so many misconceptions about what the terms and concepts, the language of it. And once you start actually knowing what all of this is, it, you stop fearing. So that fear of the unknown is what has been stopping us. And we can do away with that, with, with, with education, with providing that light on these terms and concepts, on providing light on races, different races, ethnicities. That's, that is the work that we can do now and that we are actually doing now. Yeah. Claudia, uh, Jordan, you want to add anything on the first urgency, fierce urgency of now? I think for, for, for me, it's um, important to acknowledge, too, that we have to get comfortable with conflict and with uncomfortable conversations and um, you know, given where we are right now with our state and just kind of the national conversation around how we teach about race and how we teach about these concepts, there, there can be a lot of pushback. And I think to Olivia's point, um, fear is very much, I think, the feeling that is behind that, um, I guess, lack of wanting to grow into those spaces. But I think um, in part of that learning process, there's also an unlearning process, I think, mm. of striving to challenge, you know, what, where in my, in my experience have I learned this and why is it so persisting? And in, in our work with the Division of Multicultural Affairs, um, it's, it's policy work, but, you know, policy is driven by perception sometimes. So it's important to kind of have that self-assessment with yourself um, wherever you are in, in the work, whether it's public or private. But um, I think it really requires that self-reflection to understand what is you know, limiting me from growing and trying to address the systemic issues that continue to persist. Jordan, you can bring this home or I got another quote for you if you'd rather. I, I would just add another um, Dr. King quote that says the time is always right to do what is right. Mm -hmm. So I would just say that just kind of echoes what we've been talking about. Um, I think we could look towards the future, future with optimism, but right now is the most important. And the, the changes that we make now can exponentially change the future for everyone. Yeah, okay. So Jordan, um, we're just gonna one more a Dr. King quote and then we'll go to some policy issues. But one of the quotes I wrote down from the luncheon on Monday is the, the quote that said, life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? Mm. And uh, I read in your bio that that's something that speaks to you. Uh, what have you learned about service as it relates to a beloved community, where we want to get to, how, how we're becoming better? I think what I have learned from my family's examples and my grandparents' examples um, is that if I invest into people now, 
and I show them that I love them, that I care about them, um, I'm doing not only what my family would want me to do, um, but what I think the idea of, of service is about. Um, I spent I spent um, nine months so far with a, a young man in the community, and I could honestly say I thought that I was there to make a difference, but really um, I've grown and learned so much from just spending time with them and getting to know him. Um, and I think that's what's great about service. Yeah. yeah. I have all these really um, thick kind of policy questions and I do want to ask them and we'll get to them, but uh, because of the way you responded to that and because of something that Claudia said about getting comfortable with conflict, mm. I want to ask, and I'll start with you, Claudia, how do you find common ground with someone you disagree with? What have you learned about finding common ground with someone who just has different life experiences? I gotta assume those are valid, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you read in my bio that I'm a student, right? I'm learning, and I think um, that's something that's very special to me. You know, continuing the learning process is something that can lead us through conflict. And um, something that I, I've, I've learned in the process of engaging communities and different folks is. It, when we focus more on like the person's interests versus their positions, that's where we really get to those underlying concerns of why it is that they're defensive or why we're defensive or why we're apprehensive to approach. Um, and I think as, as we continue, you know, as a state to, to learn through how it is that we need to do better for our communities that have historically lacked, um, part of it, I think, is moving away from that positional bargaining and starting to approach conversations with what do you need and why why can't we provide it yet? What can we do to do better instead of always having to you know pick a pick a side and pick a position and debate debate it essentially? Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Olivia, this must come up in your training. Difficult conversations, people that come from different life experiences, trying to find common ground. It, it, it Am does. I right? Does yeah. it come up in the training? A little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, one of the things that we found, even just in our work, in our legislative work, uh, we, we found that exactly what, what Claudia mentioned is building that common ground with somebody. It, 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 it does so much for what you're trying to achieve is you build on shared values. You, you get to a point of, okay, where is it that we do agree on something? And you start building from there. That is something that has worked for, for us uh, when we deal with lawmakers, but also on the DEI side, it, it, it helps so much to know where somebody's coming from, what their story is. And sometimes it, it can be easy to label somebody just based on their skin color, based on their ethnicity, but we don't know them. And we, we don't know where they come from. We don't know exactly what they've been through in their life. Once we start building on that, then we can really start building on, on, on making progress, on building better policies that fit everybody. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're looking for that equity piece. And that equity means equity for everybody. Right. James, you and I talked about spending time on Capitol Hill and uh, an equitable society is one where race, ethnicity, and sex do not determine opportunity and life outcomes. There's a long history of unfair and discriminatory property, education, housing, voting, and other policies and practices in the United States and Utah. How do we promote policy changes and promote opportunities for everyone as the minority population in the state grows? Uh, three things I think about, and just uh, piggybacking on what Jordan, Claudia, and Olivia was talking about is, uh, you know, when you're in service, service can be an opportunity for medication or division. Um, you know, because when you invest in service, particularly with people outside your perspective, you get to learn more and when you're, you know, whether it's serving the homeless or, you know, building a building a garden within a community you're not familiar with, you get to learn the environment, learn what's going on, and you get a better perspective. Um, I would also say that, you know, we, we're in the height of the NFL season. I like watching the NFL. And one of my, my favorite team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. We have an amazing defense, horrible offense, right? We are in the midst of all of us are in defense mode. Right, all of us, are, our barriers are up, right? And so, you know, while we're trying to convey our message to others, 
we're quick to defend, right? But we have no offense in place, right? And so the only way to really establish an effective offense is, you know, a skill that we have lacked for so long. And that skill is a real simple skill. It's called listening, right? And we just need to become better listeners to everybody within our community, outside our community. Um, we just have to become better listeners because um, when we when we listen more, um, we get more curious. When we're curious, we ask more questions, and potentially be able to find that solution. So one, you know, service is one. Listening, second, third, is that we just need we just get more of us up on your stage um, to run for office. You know, Olivia, she she put her she put her hat her, her name in the hat. Um, we need more more of us to get our name in the hat and start helping them. Uh, because, you know, as we diversify our legislature, um, we have more voices for everybody up there, then, you know, changes can start taking place. And that is a clip from Reframing the Conversation 2045 Towards a More Diverse Future, a conversation curated by our friends at Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the entire conversation, which is visual as well, so you can watch it online. I'm Laura Jones, and thanks to all of my guests this evening and you for plugging into your community with Radioactive. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.